welcome to No Better Death, the podcast that knows while you can die no better death than your own, that doesn't mean we can't look for the unusual, the noteworthy, and perhaps even the comical in the deaths of others. Each episode will take an in-depth look at some out-of-the-ordinary deaths and the events surrounding them. I am your host, Sick Grayson. This podcast will include explicit language and detailed descriptions of deaths, violence, and tragic events. So, why a show about death? Because death is the great equalizer, regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, country of origin, age, gender, social class, or economic status, we are all equal in the eyes of the reaper. None will be spared. And as such, it's the one thing we all have in common. TV horror host John Zacherly, a.k.a. The Cool Ghoul, used to say something to the effect of, one day we'll all be dead, then we'll finally have something in common. It's the force that drives our species to advance, to create, to leave legacies, to build empires. It's also one of our greatest fears. And what better way to conquer that fear than talking about it in all its oddity and absurdity? I personally have always been obsessed with the dark, the macabre, and the odd. It permeates all aspects of my life, from the clothes I wear and the music I listen to, to my family vacations. My wife starts planning a family vacation, and it's like, oh, we can go to Disney World and Legoland and all this, and I'm like, fuck that. Who's buried there? What cemeteries can we visit? What serial killer sites are in the area? Where was the closest industrial accident? I got married on Halloween. I'm just, I'm that guy. I've made celebrating the dark and the unknown a way of life. It's a hobby, a passion, and a part of who I am. For this inaugural episode, I wanted to do something special. So I've lined up two stories that share many similarities, including how uncommon they both are. But before we get into the stories, I want to ask you something. Do you ever think about how you're going to die? Or at least how you don't want to die? For me, it's plane crash or burning alive. I'll take heroin overdose, car wreck, or drowning over plane crash or burning alive any day. Some ways of death are so common they're almost expected. Cancer, falling from a tall height, being shot in a war zone. Things like that. Yet others almost never cross our mind. When you woke up today, did you ever think that today could be the day you get trampled by a horse, or sucked into a sinkhole, or swept up in a flood? No? No one ever does, yet death by unexpected means happens constantly. The stories I'm going to share with you today will serve as a reminder that death rarely occurs on our terms, and being killed in something as random as, say, a flood can be just as likely as any other tragedy. And that's what today's stories are. They're about floods. Mother Nature will always be one force that mankind can never truly overcome. You can't build a wall around a tornado, and you can't stop a tidal wave with bullets. Hurricanes, broken levees, torrential downpours, we're all familiar with the destruction and subsequent death toll associated with floods. But what's unusual about today's stories is that these floods weren't caused by rain or any other weather-related event. They didn't even involve water. These floods 
which occurred over a century apart, were caused by man. One, a flood of beer. The other, molasses. So, hop in the DeLorean and fire up the flux capacitor. We gotta go back to the London beer flood of 1814. 1814. The War of 1812 wages on with England having burned the White House and several other U.S. government buildings only weeks earlier. Norway gains independence from Denmark. Napoleon's forces are fighting their final battles before his exile to Elba. The first plastic surgery is performed. The steam-powered printing press is put into use. And the Church of England sends missionaries with chickens to New Zealand. Do you like beer? I, I gotta say, I, I really don't. I know that's blasphemous for someone in Colorado to say. Uh, statistically, Colorado outdrinks the rest of the nation. You can't throw a rock around here without hitting a brewery. But I have almost no palate or taste for beer. It all tastes like shit to me. Some beers are less shitty than others, but overall, I've never been too big on alcohol selection. And I don't get how mankind survived on nothing but alcohol for a millennia. Like, before the Industrial Revolution gave us the means to purify water, the only thing we had to drink, the only liquid you could put into your body without getting worms or diphtheria, was some form of alcohol. Mankind was drunk for centuries because it was actually safer to build an entire world while drunk than it was to drink the water. You can't even drive a car after a few beers, but you can terraform an entire planet while everyone is shit-faced. It's so weird if you think about it, and I'm really glad I wasn't alive during that time. That being said, I do drink, and when I do, I guess I prefer a lager... Uh, you know, as, as beer snobby as where I live can be, I just, I prefer a Rolling Rock or a Heineken. That's my jam. Um, one of the ones I hate is that thick, dark, English shit, Porter, you know, like, uh, like Guinness. Supposedly, Porter started as a mix of different beers. I, I'm picturing it like in the old movies about ye olde England where... Uh, the barkeeps dump all what's ever left in the glasses in a big barrel and sells it to, like, hookers and poor people and shit for two bits or pieces of eight or what the fuck ever it was, whatever was money back then, you know? And, and then one day somebody figured out a recipe to make porter taste like this mixture of beers, and that's kind of how porter was born. I mean, and I'm not beer bashing. I know some of you probably love a good porter, and that's fine. Or some people enjoy eating a laundry detergent. Doesn't mean the shit tastes good. So now imagine a wall of that throat-coating nastiness of, of porter sweeping through your neighborhood with enough force to crumble whole houses. Because that's exactly what the people of St. Giles Rookery in London, England had to deal with on October 17th, 1814. St. Giles was typical of any low-income English village of the time, and if you know anything about ye olde England, 
you know, it really sucked. Like, from the time England was founded until, like, the 1930s, living in England was like living in a landfill. Everything was dirty, there was trash everywhere, rats, shit and piss, rampant venereal disease, healthcare was basically non-existent, the guy that cut your hair was also the same guy that performed surgery, and houses were packed together so tight they were basically built on top of each other, and everyone was covered in soot. Like, if you've ever seen From Hell, you know, like, that kind of shit. Like, like people worked at a soot factory. Like, five-year-old kids, off to work, Gavna, don't need no school, gotta clock in for me shift at the soot factory. And, of course, every girl over the age of seven was a prostitute. I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure that's a historical fact. And that's the kind of place that St. Giles Rookery in England was. Looming over it all was the Horseshoe Brewery. Founded in 1746, its annual production had grown to over 103,000 barrels a year by 1811, making it England's sixth largest brewer of porter. The pride and joy of Horseshoe Brewery was its massive vats. Measuring at at least 22 feet tall each, these wooden vats held anywhere from 3,500 to 18,000 barrels of beer. Why so big? Brewery vats were considered an attraction, drawing visitors from around the country. In a time before Disneyland and NASA visitor centers and the world's largest ball of twine, people spent hours and possibly days in horse-drawn buggies to go look at big-ass beer barrels. Think about that the next time you want to complain about your lame family vacation. You could be huffing horse ass for two days to go look at a giant bucket. The vats were also something for breweries to brag about, like a dick swinging competition between breweries. Oi, we need to make this vat bigger now! But boss, what if it breaks? I don't care, Anheuser-Busch is building a 24-foot vat and I'll be damned if I'm gonna stand by while all of England dips its biscuits in Bud Light, what what? You know, like that kind of thing. And uh but one of them did break. That afternoon, an iron ring, one of the many that held these giant vats together, broke. About an hour after that ring broke, the entire vat collapsed, setting off a domino effect that destroyed a large part of the brewery and ruptured the other vats. In all, an estimated 388,000 gallons of beer swept through the streets of St. Giles, creating a 15-foot-high wave that left death and destruction in its path. All at once I found myself borne onward with great velocity by a torrent which burst upon me so suddenly as almost to deprive me of breath, said one anonymous American who witnessed the event. It sounds like a David Bowie song featuring Trent Reznor. Anonymous American. Anonymous American! Traveling round the world Da-na-na. Gonna go to England Gonna watch the beer flood Anonymous American Anyway uh, We'll pretend I didn't do that Moving right along um, At least two homes were destroyed In one, Mary Banfield And her four-year-old daughter Hannah were having tea when the torrent ripped through the structure and swept them both away, 
killing them in the process. In the other home, an unnamed family and their friends were having a wake for a two-year-old boy who had died the day before. Five people drowned when the cellar filled with beer and the top of the house collapsed inward, preventing their escape. The wave also crumbled a wall to the nearby Tavistock Arms pub, killing 15-year-old employee Eleanor Cooper under the rubble. In all, eight people died. And as this happened during the day when men and boys were at work, all but one of the fatalities were women and children. Three of them were under five years old. And that's just the immediate effect. Everything for blocks was ruined. Reports say that floorboards in other homes, soaked and weakened by the beer, collapsed under the weight of mourners who had gathered for the wakes of those killed in the initial flood, dropping them into cellars where the beer still stood waist deep. So what happens next? Someone has to be held accountable, right? You can't just destroy half a town and cause the deaths of eight people without repercussions. I mean, if your oil rig explodes, killing 15 people and irreparably damaging a vital ecosystem that thousands depend upon for their livelihood, you have to dig into your $250 billion a year pocket uh, and shell out a few bucks for damages, right? Horseshoe Brewery was taken to court, but the judge and jury declared the incident to be an act of God, holding no one responsible and making no amends for the losses and damages. There was speculation of corruption in the case, but no official statement addressing anything was ever made. As if that weren't a big enough slap in the face, Parliament actually helped the brewery stay in business. Horseshoe had already paid duties or taxes on the beer that it lost. The payment having just gone out, combined with the cost of repairs and the cost of normal operations, would have left Horseshoe bankrupt and unable to continue operating. So Parliament granted Horseshoe a waiver on the next tax payment for an equivalent amount of beer. And that help gave Horseshoe Brewery just enough cash flow to stay in business which it did until 1922, when it was demolished to make way for the Dominion Theater. I'm not really sure what's worse in this story. The fact that a tragedy like this happened at all? Or that it's been almost 200 years, and shit like this still happens on a regular basis, with no real punishment or backlash for the companies that cause these kinds of accidents. Time for five fast facts about death. One, a human head stays alive for about 20 seconds after being decapitated. Two, a body rots four times faster in water than it does on land. Three, over 100 billion people have died since the emergence of modern humans. Four, medical mistakes kill over 250,000 Americans a year. Five. When dying, your sense of hearing is the last to go. For the second story today, we depart London, England, traveling across the Atlantic Ocean and 105 years into the future to arrive in Boston, Massachusetts, January 15th, 1919, 
where no one had learned a fucking thing from the Horseshoe Brewery over a century earlier. 1919, Edsel Ford takes over for his father at Ford Motor Company. President Teddy Roosevelt is laid to rest. Prohibition is ratified. Adolf Hitler gives his first speech to the German Workers' Party. The Treaty of Versailles officially brings an end to World War One. Molasses. I love them. I grew up in the South, where you don't put syrup on anything. You put molasses on it. For those who may not be familiar with molasses, it's a sticky, thick, dark syrup created when sugarcane or sugar beets are refined into sugar. Brought to most as a key component in brown sugar. However, molasses has far more uses than just as a sweetener. It can be fermented to make rum, which at the time would be illegal uh, very soon as prohibition would be ratified the day after the story. Or it can be fermented for ethanol and industrial alcohols, such as those used in alternative fuels and munitions production. It's pretty versatile for something you put on pancakes. Like, oh, you can use this for syrup or you can make explosives with it. Whatever you want to do. Um, and the molasses held at 529 Commerce Street in Boston's North End served the latter, the latter purpose. Or at least it did until it spilled onto the streets. The tank which measured 50 feet tall and 90 feet wide with a maximum capacity of 2.3 million gallons. Think about how big of a number that is. Picture how big a container has to be to hold 2.3 million gallons of what is basically syrup. That is huge. That is an accident waiting to happen. And this vat had never been properly tested. It was known to leak. It leaked enough that the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, the owner of the tank, had it painted brown in an attempt to cover up the leaks. That, that's like when you were a kid and you let the doorknob to your bedroom door hit the wall behind it and you're like, oh shit, dad's gonna kill me, what do I do? Uh, I'll color it in with a marker. Okay, so the wall's sky blue, uh, I'll just fill it in with a dark blue marker and it'll be fine, no one will ever know. Like, that kind of mentality. This thing leaked brown molasses, so they painted it brown like you couldn't see it. Locals in the area would take buckets and bottles to this thing and catch the leaking molasses and take it home to eat. It was a known problem and no one did anything about it. It was also infrequently used, which means the wood never had a chance to adapt to the weight of its contents. It would be filled and quickly emptied to be left empty for some time again between batches, which stressed the wood and made it weaker. And this may have not been a problem by itself, but carbon dioxide from the fermenting molasses inside had built up in the tank, increasing the internal pressure. To make matters worse, the viscosity of the molasses had been reduced when warm, fresh molasses were dumped into the tank two days earlier. 
So when temperatures hit 41 degrees on January 15th, this thinned the molasses even more, causing the speed of the leaks and the pressure of the carbon dioxide to overwhelm the walls of the tank, and it collapsed. Witnesses reported feeling the ground shake and hearing a long, drawn-out roar, like that of a train, as the tank gave way, followed quickly by a thunderclap-like sound, and then what sounded like machine gun fire as the rivets started shooting out from the sides of the tank. The 40-foot, 40 foot tall 35 mile per hour wave of molasses was strong enough to tip train cars crush buildings and hurl vehicles into the harbor when the wave subsided several blocks of Boston's north end were covered in molasses two to three feet deep a quote from the Boston Post stated Molasses, waist deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled to form. Whether it was an animal or a human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. It was a wicked pisser. That, that's, that's my horrible Boston accent. It parked a car in the yacht. Moving on. Uh, more than 100 Massachusetts nautical school cadets rushed to the scene from a nearby pier. The cadets were soon joined by Boston Police, Red Cross, Army, and more Navy personnel. Some held the perimeter, keeping curious onlookers at a distance, while others waded through the muck to pull out survivors. Red Cross workers did what they could to keep rescuers and the rescued warm and fed, while doctors set up a makeshift hospital to tend to the wounded. This effort continued for four days until rescuers finally gave up. By that time, there were no more survivors to be pulled from the goo, only bodies so glazed over that they were almost impossible to identify. I mean, it's almost unfathomable, isn't it? Like, you know that feeling when you eat something like a milk dud? Like, you just, you, you, you palm a fistful of milk duds. And it's that sticky, thick, can't-swallow feeling. Can you imagine that filling your lungs? Making it impossible to breathe. Meanwhile, you're covered in the same shit you're drowning in, and it's so viscous, you can barely move. Like being covered in glue. I, I mean, I think short of serial killer level torture and dismemberment, this has to be one of the worst ways to go. These people died screaming screams that never left their throats. Frozen in, in ember like a Jurassic Park mosquito just stuck in a brown syrup, faces frozen in terror. 
without even knowing what happened. Like, that had to happen so fast. There's no way your brain can process something that unusual that quick. Like, what's going on here? Oh, uh, two million gallons of molasses coming at me. No, you don't... No one processed that. That was the same reaction that people uh, hit by a nuclear bomb must feel. You're just looking up like, what the fuck? And then it's over. And so, of course, this would be the perfect time... For a game! No cheating, no googling, no use of psychic powers. How many people were killed in the molasses flood? Okay, the answer to how many people were killed in the Boston molasses flood is 21 if you guess 21 you win what did you win the smug contentedness of knowing you were correct and there's no better prize than that 21 people dead and at least 150 injured with an unknown number of animals mostly horses and dogs also killed or wounded And here comes, really, the bitch part of this whole situation. What happens when you spill something? You gotta clean it up. But this wasn't an ordinary mess. The rain wasn't gonna wash this away. Bounty, despite being the quicker picker-upper, was not gonna get the job done here. The fireboats were used to spray the mess with high-pressure salt water, and then sand put down to soak it up. It took more than 300 people three weeks to clean up the immediate area. And even then, the harbor is said to have been stained brown well into the summer over six months later. Of course, it wasn't just the surrounding few blocks that were affected by the spill. Every time someone walked through the area, touched a building, used a payphone, or had any kind of contact with anything in the area... They tracked the molasses to, to other parts of the city. It's unknown how long it took the molasses to completely weather away, but locals say you could smell them in the air for decades. Decades. A class action lawsuit, one of the first in the state, was brought against United States Industrial Alcohol Company. The company denied any responsibility, claiming that the tank must have been blown up by anarchists trying to hinder munitions production. Because, you know, page 52 of the anarchist cookbook where it tells you how to blow up a giant bowl of syrup. That, this was their defense. That, uh, ridiculous. So after three years of hearings, the court did find USIAC liable for the damages. The company paid out a total of $600,000 in out-of-court settlements. That's about $6.5 million in 2017 dollars. The average payout per life was $7,000, or adjusted for 2017 level inflation, about seventy-six dollars per life. So, the victims in this case made out better than the ones in London... But still, seven grand? Seven grand for a human life. 
Like, that's just enough to be insulting, isn't it? In both of these cases, I think the company should have been closed, all assets sold, and the money split up among the victims' families. End of story. That's it. You kill someone, you are fucked. You should have to pay adequately. USAIC did not rebuild the tank, and today the property is a park, complete with a Little League baseball field, bocce courts, and a playground. The incident did lead to changes in regulations, such as tanks requiring oversight by a licensed architect and a civil engineer. Or, you know, they could have just learned from the London beer flood that happened over 100 years before and put it in a concrete or metal tank, thus avoiding the entire wooden vat breaking thing to begin with. But people never learn. And that that's it. That's the two stories for this uh, premiere episode. Uh, it's just... Nothing too epic. It's just, to me, I guess it's weird because when you wake up, like, I always think, okay, there's the possibility I could get in a car wreck today or really in America these days, I feel like anytime I walk in a Walmart or any public area, I could get shot. You know, there's some things when you get up in the morning, you subconsciously or consciously, whether you realize it or not, you're processing the possibility of death is going to occur today. But in, in these two situations... I highly doubt anyone that died in either story said to themselves, oh, today's going to be the day I drown to death in shitty beer, or I'm going to drown sucking molasses into my lungs, you know? And it's it's hard to imagine what goes through someone's mind as that's happening, you know? That's the kind of, of thought process and emotional state you can never understand unless you were actually there. It's just so bizarre, you know, and out of the ordinary. So, thought I'd share those two stories with you, uh, in case you weren't aware of them. Uh, before I go, I want to thank you for listening. Please leave a review and tell a friend. I'll probably have the next episode up in about two weeks, uh, just sort of testing the waters with this one, see what kind of feedback I get, and we'll see where it goes from here. Um, hopefully I'll be a little more comfortable, uh, bit better of a speaker next episode you know like you ask anybody that does a podcast the first episode is nerve-wracking and i'm not gonna front this one kind of had me a little nervous i slipped in a few spots when i was talking and shit um we'll see what happens Uh, also i implore you uh please send an email or say something on the facebook page uh let me know what you think about the show what should i start doing stop doing continue doing Uh, If there's any death stories you'd like to hear on the show, let me know and I'll definitely look into it. You never know what kind of story I might be looking for. So if you have something cool that would fit the bill for what I do here, let me know. If you have any personal stories about death or just want to talk about death in general, how you'd like to die, how you don't want to die, whatever, uh, send in an email. You never know what will make it onto the show. And the more you send me, the more material I can have to expand the show, maybe come up with segments, make it a little bit longer try to get this really going and uh, I'd like to create a community with the listeners involved uh, just as much as the host kind of like what the Sklars and Dan do with Dumb People Town if you're familiar with that show you know they they use a lot of uh, listener input and that's what I want to do the email address is nobetterdeath at gmail.com 
and uh, No Better Death on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's all for now. Until next time, try not to die. (laughs) 